Every bit of that glory that we desire to see extended in the world is contested by Satan, is contested by the humanists out there, and we're going to do a, a very a quick overview of 1 Samuel 8 through 15, looking at the context into which King David came. And I'm going to read just uh, the first few verses of chapter 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13. Saul reigned one year. When he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash and in the mountains of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gabeah of Benjamin. rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. Now all Israel heard it said that Saul had attacked a garrison of the Philistines, and that Israel had also become an abomination to the Philistines. And the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves and thickets and rocks and holes and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Then he waited seven days, according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, Bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened, as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering, that Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him, that he might greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? Saul said, when I saw the people were scattered from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord, therefore I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly, you have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, for now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Then Samuel arose and went from Gilgal to Gabeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. Father, we thank you for your word. It is our desire to glory in it, to tremble before it, uh, to govern our lives by it, and I pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding, as Ephesians said, that we might understand the hope of our calling, our callings on earth and our calling toward heaven. We pray that as uh, we consider these words, that uh, the impact of them would be by your spirit and not simply by our human arm of flesh. We love you. It is our desire to be more and more sanctified and conform to your word. And so we pray uh, for your spirit to quicken these words to our hearts in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as most of you know, I have very strong disagreements with 
the centralizing politics of Abraham Lincoln, as well as uh, uh, many of the presidents who followed after him. And when you compare the life of Saul and you compare the politics of Abraham Lincoln, you will see a lot of parallels between those two. Now, it's true, there were a lot of good virtues in both men, and uh, there were godly men who appreciated both men. Uh, Samuel mourning for the Saul that he loved, and uh, other men liking Abraham Lincoln. But I am convinced that both men were used by Satan to destroy and rob the countries, their respective countries, of many of the liberties that they had experienced up to that time. Both used the threat of danger to, as an excuse to grab more power. Both ran roughshod over their political opponents. Both tried to suppress free speech. Uh, both ignored limits to their presidency. Both ignored the interposition of other magistrates. And you could go on. If you compare their two lives, you'll see a lot of parallels uh, between uh, the two of them, between Caesar Saul and Caesar Lincoln. Uh, what we're experiencing in Washington, D.C. is really nothing new. Now, if you look at uh, chapter 13, verse 14, uh, Saul is just beginning the third year of his reigning over Israel, and Samuel tells Saul that his kingdom is not going to be passed on to his sons. He says, The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So when Saul rejected a higher authority to which he was supposed to submit, God rejected him. Now, he did continue to reign for quite a while, 38 years to be precise. Uh, but in the meantime, verse 14 says, The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. What exactly was God seeking for? The text says he was seeking for, for a man, but what kind of a man uh, should have replaced Saul? We know the citizens were certainly not seeking for the same thing that God was seeking for because God gets very upset with them uh, for their choice in 1 Samuel 8. In fact, you can go ahead and, and turn to uh, chapter 8 because we're going to take uh, quite a bit of time looking at that. But it's clear that God was not looking for a perfect man. There's no perfectionism here. Uh, David was no, uh, not perfect at all. He was not looking for a man without any weaknesses because David had plenty of them. He was not looking for somebody with political connections or power or money or prestige. David didn't have any of those things. He wasn't looking for someone who could win a popularity contest. In chapter 15, even his dad didn't think that he was kingly material. Uh, so let's contrast what the people were seeking with what God was seeking. So 1 Samuel 8, and I should just mention that this is 25 years before David is anointed. Now, David is anointed when he's 15 years old, so this is 10 years. Chapter 8 is 10 years before David is born, just as a background. Now, these people here, they are sick and tired of the, the, the tyranny and the problems that they're seeing in these lower magistrates, the sons of uh, Samuel. Samuel was a good, uh, a, a good judge, a good ruler, but these other uh, 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 sons of his were not. Take a look at verses 4 through 5. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. 
Now, the first thing that these people are looking for is something new. So you're, you're old, you know. We need new leadership with new vision, new ideas. We need some change. A vote for Saul is a vote for change. <laughs> Sound familiar, doesn't it? They didn't stop to ask, well, how do we define what would be a good change that might come in? They don't call Saul, Samuel's uh, sons to repentance. That would be a good change. And if they don't repent, uh, you know, telling some of the nobles, hey, you guys need to do some interposition here, that would be a good change, taking things back to the old paths. But people were just hoping, you know, a new president with new ideas is going to fix the problems that are out there. It's a very naive sort of thinking. Newness by itself has never been the answer. Change without definition is absolutely meaningless. Now, the second thing that they were seeking for was a centralized fix to local problems. Now, at this point in history, there really wasn't a centralized government. They did have a judge, but the judges back then, they didn't have palaces. They didn't have any central economies. Yes, they led the people in battle. And uh, on occasion, there was an appeal, you know, appeals court system uh, that was put in place. But it was very, very limited government, no centralized government. And admittedly, some of the rulers in the local governments were very, very corrupt. Take a look at verse 3. His sons, this is Samuel's sons, did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. And so there is corruption in city hall. There's corruption in the state legislatures. And the people are thinking, how do we deal with this corruption? Maybe if we give a little bit more power to the federal government, we can deal with these problems at the local level. That's basically what they're saying. A government at the federal level maybe can fix this corruption. And that has been the naive assumption in country after country right down to the present times. More and more and more power is given to the federal government to try to fix problems that historically have always been dealt with at the local level. And has it worked? No, it has not worked. It's just created more and more complex problems that have arisen out of this. The reverse is true. If depravity becomes really bad when local power supports it, it makes sense that depravity is going to get even worse when federal power uh, supports it. And we have seen this. As more and more power has been granted or grabbed by the federal government, it becomes worse and worse and worse. And and, and the reasons are obvious. I think uh, Lord Acton was correct. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely unless God brings in the kind of checks and balances and limitations that David did by his God's mercy and grace. But then it's not absolute power anymore, is it? There was a deliberate attempt by David to bring in some limitations upon uh, this power. But apart from God's mercy, it's guaranteed that more and more evils are going to flow out of our national government. One of the reasons is they're looking for a centralized fix to local problems. And centralization is never going to fix the problems that plague a nation. I mean, right now we've got a bill in in, uh, the Senate that is trying to track every, they want to track every bottle of peanut butter that goes into stores and comes out of stores. Why? To protect people from poisoning, okay? Their motives maybe are good, but their, their methodology is a mad methodology, and they want to track who can grow and how they can grow the foods. And I went, read through that bill, and thankfully a lot of the horrible stuff has been axed in committee, but it can be put right back in there again. 
But even what is less, what it's doing is it's geared against local growers and private growers, and it's just like a perfect setup for the big corporations uh, to be benefiting from this. It's called the Food Safety Modernization Act, Senate Bill 510. It's a House counterpart, and, and like I say, this is one of hundreds of measures that follow the same naive spirit that these Jews had. Let's get centralized fixes to the local problems that we have. It's un-American, it's unconstitutional, but most importantly, it is unbiblical. The third thing that they wanted was a king. Now, verse 6 says, Samuel the prophet was greatly displeased with this request. And verses 7 through 9 says, God was greatly displeased with this request. Now, he was going to grant their request, but it was not the ideal. In fact, the text there makes it very clear. God's going to say, okay, I'll give you a king, and I'm going to rub your noses in it and make you realize that what you're asking for is not really a good thing. In fact, this begins a long line of kings in Israel to stand for all time as an example that you really cannot trust any depraved human with this kind of office without it being abused at some point. Even David abused his office later on in his life. Uh, He was one of the better kings, and there were a few other kings, but this long line of kings was designed to make people desperately long for the coming of Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And... um, Anyway, we've got people today who want to make Obama king. But the cry of America's founding fathers needs to be on our lips that we will have no king but Jesus. All others have enough issues. We ought to be extremely leery about kingship. God wanted people to have a very bad taste in their mouth over kings, at least kings that didn't have checks and balances put into their lives. Now, of course, the worst part of this request is that they wanted to have a king like all of the nations. Look at verse 5, last part there. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. See, what was particularly heinous about this request, if you look at all of the nations that surrounded Israel, uh, the pagan nations, those kings had no checks and balances in their governments to restrain their power. The highest word in the land was the word of that king. And this is exactly the way it was going to be with King Saul. There wasn't anybody eventually who could stand up to King Saul. His word was the law. You know, in England, the constant fight with the king was whether the king was law or the law was king, right? Uh, The king said, rex lex. The king is law. And the Puritans said, no way. We are not submitting to that. It's lex rex. The law is king. You have a law over you. And if you disobey that law, you have become a tyrant. You are fit to be spewed out of the Lord's mouth, just like Saul was. And so this lust to be like the world, and really it's not just in politics, it's in every area of of our lives, uh, has infected the church of Jesus Christ. It's certainly in the area of politics. What we need to do is we need to go back to the Bible just like our founding fathers did. Now I know there's a lot of controversy. Some people think our founding fathers were deliberately trying to make us a secular nation. And I won't get into that debate, but here's one thing you could study. There was a massive a study that was done by two university professors over a period of many years, they read every document that the, anybody that was involved in, these, um, in the Declaration of Independence or involved in the, um, the, the Constitution, they read their writings to see who were the people that they quoted the most. 
fascinating study. By far, the most quotations came from the Bible, and from the Bible quotations, the, by far the most came from the book of Deuteronomy, where they were saying, we can't do that, but he, because here's what Deuteronomy says. And uh, then next to that were Calvinistic documents, a whole bunch of Calvinistic documents that these guys appealed to. One of the books you could take a look at was Samuel Adams. He was the second president, and uh, he was a part of all of those deliberations. And he said, he said that the book that was most frequently referenced was the book, A Defense of Liberty Against Tyrants, by Junius Brutus. Now, that was a, a Calvinistic treatise back in the 1500s that was very carefully exegeting from the Bible what interposition was all about. And uh, th- he said, yeah, that was the book that they really ransacked and looked through. The next book that they appealed to was the book by Samuel Rutherford, who was a Puritan writer who wrote the book Lex Rex, which put a price on his head by the king. The king didn't like that too much. But both of those books, what they were doing is they were giving very careful biblical exposition of what are the checks and balances that you need to have in place in a government if you are to retain those liberties. I think just studying that by yourself will make you a caution and say, well, maybe it wasn't a coup, you know, to make it a secular nation. I think there was a lot more going on there than a lot of people make out. But we need to do exactly the same thing. We've got to have biblical exegesis finding out what kind of government is God pleased with. And it's certainly a government that is very, very limited. We have lost almost all of the checks and balances that our founding fathers garnished from these Republican uh, and these um, uh, Calvinistic writings. Uh, And the Constitution is almost a meaningless document. Uh, uh, You know, paragraph after paragraph is completely being run, uh, run roughshod over. So in my view... A revolution has taken place, and it was not a revolution by the people. It's a revolution by the internationalists who are ruling behind the scenes. You may disagree with that, but I think that the attempts to be doing this were started right out of the chute by Hamilton uh, to try to get centralized bank, try to get some of these... uh, from my perspective, internationals. He wasn't successful, and many others were not successful. By the time you get to Abraham Lincoln, uh, there was beginning to be a lot of traction on this uh, centralized bank and and, uh, this connectionalism there. Well, anyway, back to our story. This whole request amounted to a rejection of God. Look at verses 7 through 8. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should reign over them. I want you to notice, first of all, God says that this request for a king, like the other nations have, was a rejection of his sovereignty. Now, chapter 14, verse 47, uses the term sovereignty, and it says that Saul spent his whole his whole reign trying to consolidate his own sovereignty, not God's sovereignty, but his own sovereignty. And Saul's sovereignty was an offense to God's sovereignty. And when United States of America declares itself to be the sovereign, in other words, the highest authority in our lives, uh, then it stands as an offense to the Lord Jesus Christ today just as much as Saul did back then. It's fit to be spewed out of God's mouth just as much as Saul was. Now, 
um, most of us, I think, recognize this. What we don't recognize is how the same spirit manifests itself in other ways. When you guys go to whatever you go to, tea parties or other political events, you need to be ever so careful that you don't, in rejecting the absolute sovereignty of the federal government, say, no, it's the individual who was absolutely sovereign. Or it's the state who was absolutely sovereign. You cannot do that. There is no full sovereignty to, but to God alone. Every other sovereignty is a limited sovereignty. It's a delegated sovereignty. It's a sovereignty that must consciously and daily submit itself to the laws of King Jesus. You see, the individual sovereign can be just as evil as the national sovereign. God alone has ultimate sovereignty. And where our nation has refused to acknowledge uh, the, the kingship of Christ and his laws over our nation, and they have, they've kicked his laws out of the legislative and executive and judicial branches, what they have engaged in is treason against King Jesus. But let me tell you something. When individuals who claim to be sovereign individuals reject God's laws over them, and it's some other philosophy, whether it's a libertarian or some other philosophy, becomes the highest law in their lives, they are just as treasonous in Christ's sight as the civil government today is. And so we've got to be careful on this issue of sovereignty to say, Lord, you alone are sovereign. Any sovereignty I have as an individual is a jurisdictional, very limited, very carefully defined sovereignty that God has given to me. Take a look at verse 8. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now, there are two things I want to highlight here. Their request for a king was idolatry. It's treated by God as idolatry, putting another God before them. And so the state can become a God. Many scriptures indicate that this is true. And I think that that has happened in our nation. Now, our money still has in God we, we trust. Yes, that's the money, right? In God we trust. Still has that on there. But I think the reality is that it should say, in state we trust. I shouldn't say should say, but that's what it would say if we really said what we believed. In God we trust is what should be on our money, but what's happened is we have allowed this messianic view of the state to infiltrate the church of Jesus Christ itself. We have become idle factories in the church. Now, second... These people were obviously lacking self-control and self-government. When you lack self-government, you will automatically invite tyrants to come and to fill the void. And so the people sought a king that would appeal to the world, and they got exactly what they deserved. Let's take a quick look at what they got. Verse 9 says, Now therefore heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. Now, God was clearly upset, and he's giving them one more chance to, to, to say, okay, we don't want a king after all, by showing them these are the kinds of tyrannical things that are going to flow from the king that you have chosen. They don't care. They want this king. They want to be like the other nations. Now, Hosea 13, verses 10 through, 10, uh, 10 through 11, discusses this period, and it says what should have been. God said, I will be your king. Where is any other that they may save you out of all your cities? Who is Savior today? It's not King Jesus. 
It is the state, and even Christians are serving another God than Jesus. Anyway, Hosea goes on to say, And your judges to whom you said, Give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. So he's saying back then God was angry at this request and he gave them a king in their anger. Nothing could be clearer than this testimony that what they asked for was wrong and God was going to rub their noses in it and make them smell and taste the bitter fruits of what they were asking for. Now I won't spend a lot of time on this, but let's quickly look at the things that Samuel accurately predicted would happen under this king, King Saul. Verse 11. This will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen, and son will run before his chariots. Now that's compulsory military service. And Saul did this throughout his career. I'll just read you one example. It's uh, 1 Samuel 14, verse 52. When Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took him for himself. Now, this is not the volunteerism of the Bible that Deuteronomy 20 and other passages mandate. This is conscription. He took him. Okay, they didn't have any choice about this. And uh, some of these people, you know, they didn't have any choice but to flee or to serve this tyrant. And we're going to be seeing that David was surrounded by a lot of draft dodgers who were quite willing to fight. It wasn't like they were unwilling to fight, but they didn't want to fight for a tyrant. You know, men who are really men want to fight for a good cause, but they're not just going to fight for any cause that is out there. But in any country that begins to be tyrannical, they almost have to have a mandatory conscription policy, whether it's everybody or, 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 or it's not, because good men, yeah, there are going to be some people who will serve no matter what, but good men are going to, be, they're going to find it very hard to get them when things get worse and worse uh, in a nation. So look at Deuteronomy 20, some other places, and you'll see, okay, people who want to fight. We should want people who want to fight for liberty, not just a person who wants to fight on their own. Next, as the government expands, the king begins to expand agencies way beyond what the Bible allows for, and uh, there needs to be a civil service to go along with these non-military jobs. Verses 12 through 13, He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. And so there's a civil service that begins to parallel the top-down chain of command in the military. And he says, he will appoint captains, okay, and, and these captains that he's appointing, some he will set, excuse me, he will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots, He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. Now, since when does the Bible allow, you know, a draft for these kinds of industries or to pay for those kinds of things out of the taxes? It does not. Next comes eminent domain, verse 14. And he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves. Now, keep in mind, this is what he says is going to happen under King Saul, okay? Uh, Saul's power knew no limits. This is not the kind of thing God says, oh yeah, this is the way it should be with governments. He's saying this is the kind of tyranny that will happen under King Saul. And God rejected that, that, that idea. When people started trying to put limits upon Saul in the early days, a couple times they were successful, but uh, he learned from those and he made it harder and harder to resist 
his desires. And if state and county and um, uh, city, uh, local governments do not begin to engage in interposition early on, it becomes harder and harder to engage in interposition as time uh, goes on. In fact, what's the sad thing today, you know, in terms of eminent domain, is that the local governments, they're right in bed with the federal government. They, they love the fact that the, that the Supreme Court has said, yeah, you can swipe, you know, properties any time that you want to. This government theft is rife. It's on the local level. It's all over America. And according to the Pentateuch, according to many other writings in the Scripture, eminent domain is an incredible evil that should never be tolerated by God's people. It is a horrible evil. If they can take your sons and your daughters and your property, they can take anything, including your lives. There is nothing left that they cannot take. Now, this eminent domain was not even for absolutely essential purposes of security. Verse 14 says that Saul would take these choice properties, verse 14 he says, and give them to his servants. This is cronyism. Okay, this is using public monies to buy loyalty and to enrich the pockets of his friends. And sadly, such transfer of wealth into the pockets of the powerful has been going on in America for many, many generations. It's really started with uh, when the central bank, I mean, they tried and it failed. The fits and starts of the central bank. Just do a little bit of reading of who was in charge of those banks and where some of the money flowed on internal improvements, you will see theft, criminal theft that was never prosecuted. So don't just think this happens now. This, this was going on way back when the central banks uh, were beginning. And if you want some essays that have been written, heavily documented essays, I can show you. Uh, this is something that's been going on for a long time. But I think Washington, D.C. has definitely perfected the art of redistribution of wealth and cronyism. It's very sickening. Anyway, Samuel displays taxes next as being one of the great evidences of a kind of civil government that God hates, that he is angry over. And I want you to notice the level of taxation that Samuel considers to be an appalling evidence of tyranny. This is really surprising to, to Westerners. Verse 15, He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. Verse 17, he will take a tenth of your sheep. Two bad things in these verses. The first is that this guy is going to take a 10% tax. Only God can claim such a high tax. Now, God was saying this to try to put fear into these people. This is a horrible thing, 10%. And yet now we've got 30 to 50% taxation and people don't really seem to think much about it. In fact, they're hoping they can get a little bit of that money into their own pockets. The second bad thing is using the tax money to enrich those who were loyal to him. And we see such flows of money today as well. And really, the people are getting what they deserve. Saul was a judgment. So don't just get mad at the civil Civil officers that are out there and who are involved in this, there are some good men in government and good men in the military uh, who are not involved in this kind of thing. But don't just be getting mad at the ones who are. Be getting mad at the people who put them into place, uh, into government in the first place, the ones who are saying, give us a king like all of the nations have. Uh, We're getting exactly what we deserve in this nation. 
The sixth horrible thing in Saul's reign was forced community service, much like Obama's team proposed at the early stages. Verse 16 says, And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys, and put them to his work. Okay, he was co-opting men and co-opting machinery, as it were, equipment, in the service of the country. Now, you can call it what you might. God calls it slavery. Okay, take a look at the last phrase of verse 17. And you will be his servants. The ESV translates it, you will be his slaves. Now, this is turning civil government completely upside down because the Bible says that the government was supposed to be a servant. Okay, he's supposed to be a servant. And uh, uh, the, the Romans 13 says, first and foremost, he is a servant to God. And then secondarily, he is a servant to the people that he's supposed to be serving on behalf of God. And uh, that's a very important order there. But when we leave the Bible behind, what happens is that inevitably the civil government becomes the master and we become the slaves on his giant plantation. The end result of all human governments, whatever systems, some systems go down much more quickly than other systems do, but all civil governments that are not invaded by the grace of God and are not governed by the law of God end up with some kind of oppression. And the reason is, I think, quite clear. Only God's grace can ultimately bring liberty, and only God's law can define what is liberty. James 1.25 calls the law of God the perfect law of liberty. So take a look at verse 18 at this oppression. And you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Now, to see how this all came to pass, we can start with the relatively good time. So take a look over at uh, chapter 13. And before we can get into this, I do need to settle a debate that, uh, that is out there. What does verse 1 mean? Uh, a lot of people have been puzzled by that. And part of the reason is they've, in, instead of looking at one thing as an, uh, in the Bible as an interpretive uh, maxim, they say that this is the common regnal statement that this king was so many years old when he began to reign, and this is the total number of years that he did reign. And uh, it was a mistaken notion. But if you take it that way, then you got a problem. He started to reign at age one. Now, wait a minute. He's fighting battles at age one. What's going on there? And uh, then he reigned for, oh, it's a blank number there. He reigned for two years. It's clear in the Bible that he reigned for 40 years. So there's uh, quite a number. Most uh, modern commentaries, most modern ver versions say that we've lost the Hebrew. We don't know what the numbers are that belong in here. And so they say it should say Saul was blank years old when he became a king and he reigned for blank and two years. ESV leaves it there and says we've lost the Hebrew. Uh, many other versions, though, have the audacity to insert numbers in here that aren't in the text anywhere. They're just guessing. For example, the NIV says Saul was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned over Israel 42 years. So they say 30. Another version says he was 20 years old when he began to reign. Another version says he was 40 years old. They're just guessing. This is ridiculous. This is not translation. This is liberal uh, uh, exegesis. And if you've got one of those versions, you need to get rid of it as your regular study Bible. For reading, generally, maybe okay. Get a literal Bible that takes seriously... The, um, the every word of Scripture, New King James, King James, the old Geneva Bible, there's literal ones that are out there. But here is the point. Jesus said, till heaven 
and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle of my law will pass away. Okay? The jot was a yod. It's the small, it looks like a comma almost. It's the smallest letter in the Hebrew Bible. A tittle is even smaller. It's the little serif that's on a, uh, on a letter. He says, not the smallest letter is going to pass away, and yet they say here, well, here's two numbers that have passed away. There's liberal presuppositions behind a lot of these translations, and I think you need to be aware of it. And if you want to see the Scriptures, I've got a whole boatload of Scriptures here saying every word has been preserved. Now, here's what the Hebrew literally says. There's the word son in there that people, a lot of people miss. Saul was a son for one year, and when he had reigned two years... Comma, and then the chapter explains what happened after those two years. Now, James Jordan points out that this is the language of co-regency. You can find it later on in Kings, where a father and a son are reigning. Maybe the son starts to reign before his dad dies, and he reigns for three or four years or something like that. That's what was happening here. Samuel adopted Saul as his son, as his replacement. And we know in chapter 7, verse 15, that he was to be the judge for the rest of his life, and Saul was to be right with him. He says in the next verses after that that he was going to train Saul how to be a king, and he was going to oversee Saul. And so Jordan's explanation makes perfect sense of the history, makes perfect sense of the literal Hebrew. So what is this verse saying? Saying three things. First, Saul was at this point reigning as an adopted son of Samuel, It's a co-regency. Second, the events of chapters 10, verse 24, through chapter 12, verse 29, all happened in Saul's first year of reigning. And then third, a second year transpired with no history recorded before the events of chapter 13 take place, which means chapter 13, verse 2, he's just beginning his third year of reign. Now, I had to get into that because some people are going to be puzzling about that. Now, with that settled, what this means to me is that things started going south really, really quickly in Saul's reign, very quickly. We can see the abuse of leadership all the way back in chapter 11, verse 7, where Saul oversteps the power of the draft. God never allowed kings to force citizens to to fight, and yet chapter 11, verse 7 says this, So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of messengers, saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. Now who gave the king the right to destroy other people's property if they don't join up for the the, the military? Nobody gave that. Now yes, he was bold and courageous, and he was fighting for the Lord, and he was even fighting with the power of the Holy Spirit at that point in his life. And so, but even with all of those good things, there were some little hints that, you know what, we need to watch this guy because down the road, things could get worse. He's fighting as a, you know, as a Christian at this point. A second hint that we have is in chapter 13, where he oversteps his jurisdictional limits. And you know the story, we just read that. God gave Saul a test. He tells Samuel, okay, Samuel, Tell Saul, you're going to go fight this battle, but do not fight until I come and offer up a sacrifice to the Lord God. So Saul waits, and he waits, and he waits. He doesn't wait past the time, but it's getting close to the time. And then he just gets impatient, and he says, 
okay, I'm just going to go ahead and make the sacrifice myself. This was an overstepping of jurisdictional limits. That's the church jurisdiction. That is not the civil jurisdiction. Samuel comes, he rebukes him, and what's Saul's excuse? I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. I felt compelled. I am sick and tired of the civil government using the line of reasoning that it's a compelling state interest that this citizen's liberties are being taken away. That's what Saul was in effect saying. It's a compelling state interest. I felt compelled. Everything can eventually become a compelling state interest that overrides liberties. And Hitler used that excuse all the time. Emergencies are constantly the justification for jurisdictional intrusions. And I think it's time that our sheriffs and our mayors and our governors and our state legislators start resisting the federal government when it oversteps its jurisdiction. The federal government has absolutely no business mandating that the city of Omaha has to update its sewers. I'm sorry, it has no jurisdiction whatsoever to be saying something like that. And a mayor has the opportunity to step in and say, we're not going to be taxing our citizens to death over this. This is not your business to be mandating. Now, in this chapter, when Saul engages in interposition, he appeals to a law that stands above King Saul by which anyone can judge whether or not King Saul is a tyrant. It's not the state that makes law, it's God who makes law. And by the way, that's written right into our Constitution. People say it's not a Christian Constitution. Look at the Bill of Rights, Article 7, and it says in there that the ancient Christian common law, common law is Christian law that's been applied over a period of time, has to be used in every court of the nation. Now, they've redefined common law as modern, uh, modern, uh, what do they call it, not precedent, um, case law. That is not the case. There are commentaries. They know exactly what common law is, but there's been a a revolution there. But anyway, take a look at verses 13 through 15. Now, I just said that to point out the Bible is the highest law in this nation, at least it's supposed to be, according to not only Article 7, but all of the rest of common law. You look at... I shouldn't be going down rabbit trails, but you you look at some of the laws that were in New York and a lot of these different states. Blasphemy was a crime. Homosexuality was a crime. Take a look at those things. They took it right from the Bible. This is right up into the 1900s. People have forgotten the history in America. Biblical law is the highest law in this nation. Anyway, now in this chapter, verse 13 and through 15, Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. I want you to notice kings are under God's commandments too. Samuel goes on, For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Then Samuel arose and went from Gilgal to Gabeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. Now this was a classic case of of, um, resistance to tyranny, didn't work, because Saul just went ahead and did his own thing anyway. Uh, by the way, Samuel tried to do this resistance to tyranny one more time, and that's in 1 Samuel chapter 15. After that, he's afraid to do it anymore. When he goes to anoint uh, David, and God tells him to go, he says, man, I don't dare even go leave my house. Saul will kill me. 
Okay, these are the downward steps into tyranny that a good nation, a good nation, even like Israel, can go down into. Another hint can be seen in chapter 14. Look at verses 18 through 19. Chapter 14, 18 through 19. And Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here, for at that time the ark of God was with the children of Israel. Now it happened, while Saul talked to the priest, that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Okay, the ark was being brought for guidance, but as, as the pressures began to mount, Saul said, Oh, forget it. I, I don't need God's guidance. He was doing that just as a show of religion. And I think if you study the history of politics in America, there has been a show of religion, a show, even de Tocqueville talked about that. He said, Christianity is so pervasive, I can't even quote it exactly, but Christianity is so pervasive, he says, hypocrisy must be on a very high level. And what he meant by that is that people have to pretend to be Christians. They have to give a show of religion uh, in order for people to even vote for them uh, back then. Um. Anyway, when was the last time you had a present president who truly cared about God's guidance, truly sought God's guidance, and priests or pastors were willing to give it, rather than just willing to give what the president wanted to hear? Look at the rash command in verse 24. By the way, we've had chaplains who have been very good in speaking God's word to senators and congressmen and to presidents have been very bold, could have lost their office. There have been, there's been a wonderful history of chaplains up there. But look at verse 24, 14, verse 24. And the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had placed the people under oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening, before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. That's absolute foolishness. It's insanity, utter insensitivity to the people. It's just another example of tyranny. Look at verses 43 through 44. Saul, uh, Jonathan didn't even realize the command had been given. He ate a little bit of honey. And that comes back and uh, Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand. So now I must die? Saul answered, God do so and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. But this shows utter disregard to scriptural limitations to a king's power. He was willing to kill his own son, to save face over the stupid oath that he had taken. It's just, it's just ridiculous. Now, thankfully, the people engaged in interposition. This time it was successful. But, you know, Saul's embarrassed by this, and later he makes sure he kills anybody who even suggests interposition, okay, who crosses him. Now, I'm not going to cover all of the details in your outline, but in the next chapters we see self-enrichment. Was there self-enrichment in America today? Oh, yes, there is. In these chapters, we see disobedience to clear commands of God. Does that happen today? It happens on a grand scale. Uh, in these chapters, we see passing the buck for responsibility to underlings. Not my fault, it's their fault. Do we see that today? Certainly. Uh, in these chapters, we see such growth in his megalomania that by chapter 16, Samuel is in fear for his life, and the most part, he does not even leave his home. Is there megalomania today? Yes, there is. 
the Spirit of God leaves Saul. Demonic spirit comes and torments him. And I can assure you, there are clouds of demons in Washington, D.C. and every state capital trying their utmost to influence these politicians to do their will. We need to be in prayer for them. This is a spiritual warfare issue. This is not just politics. This is a spiritual warfare uh, issue. Now, all of this, we're not going to even get into those things. Uh, we're, uh, because in the future I'm going to be preaching on those chapters, we'll dig into it then. But all of this is a warning that we must not set up the state as a god. We must not. It will let us down. Now let's contrast all of this with what God was seeking. We know what the people want today, but what does God want in America? What kind of a ruler does God want? The short answer is that God wanted the opposite of what he saw in Saul. He wanted a king who distrusted his own power, who put limits upon his own power, who was small and humble in his own eyes, and who wanted God exalted in all of life. But I love the way that 1 Samuel 13 and verse 14 words it. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now the first thing I want you to notice is God is still willing to use humans to rule over a nation. Just because there's a depravity does not mean humans cannot be used. They can be used. And our founding fathers talked a great deal about that. If we can't trust people because they're depraved, what do we do? It, it, it can work. But he says here, the Lord has sought for himself a man. A man, right? Not a woman. But he's a human. How do we involve humans in politics which, without getting up to our eyeballs in tyranny almost overnight? Well, I think David shows the way. David took us back to the old paths of Samuel decentralized government. He took away taxation. He put all kinds of checks and balances uh, into place. He paid for his meals out of his own pocket. He did other things to limit the power of the king. Now Solomon started off that way, but later on, as he backslid, he started thinking, you know, I really like the way Saul did it. And he started, well, he probably didn't think specifically of Saul, but he, he realized that he needed to have more power if he was going to do the kind of projects that he wanted to do. Those were internal improvements, by the way. Uh, they were back in Solomon's day. We've always had them, okay? But David showed the way to preserve the kind of limited government that depraved humans should have. Seek a man with David's heart. I think the key phrase is, the Lord has sought for himself a man after God's own heart. What does that mean? Three things, very quickly. First part of being a man after God's own heart, uh, you can find, and I didn't put it in your outline, but you can find it in Second Chronicles 16. Oh, I guess I did put it in there. Second Chronicles 16, verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. Another translation has, whose heart is completely His. If you want to be powerfully used by God, make sure you check your heart every day. Lord, is my heart totally loyal to You? Is every part of my heart been given to You? Um, the only way of checking that uh, is asking yourself, the only times I go to God, times when I need Him? Let me tell you a story from... Uh, Abraham Lincoln's life, uh, got this out of a biography by uh, Jenison, 
There was a time late in his presidency when things were not going very well. He was very discouraged, and he got a surprise visit from one of his friends from Springfield, Illinois. And uh, all afternoon, they just laughed and had good fellowship. And he tried to get him to stay overnight, but he said, no, he, he needed to be leaving. So he excused himself. This was Billy Brown, a shopkeeper in, in Springfield, Illinois. And as he's getting up to leave, Lincoln said, Billy, what did you come down here for? I came to see you, Mr. Lincoln, but you ain't asked me for anything, Billy. What is it? Out with it. No, Mr. Lincoln, just wanted to see you. Felt kind of lonesome. Been so long since I'd seen you, and I was afraid I'd forget some of them yarns if I didn't unload them soon. Lincoln looked at him and said, You mean to tell me you came all the way from Springfield, Illinois, just to have a visit with me, and that you ain't got no complaints in your pocket or advice up your sleeve? Yes, sir, that's about it. And Lincoln could hardly believe his ears because the friends that he had surrounded himself with, that's almost all that they wanted is using Lincoln, getting things from him. And it blew him away that this guy just wanted his friendship. And the story says tears came down Lincoln's cheeks and he says, I'm homesick, Billy, just plumb homesick. Now, we have a tendency to treat God just like those people treated Abraham Lincoln. Of course, I think Abraham Lincoln set himself up for that with his philosophy of government, you know, which is a give me government or give, 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 you know. But but God is looking for people with hearts that are committed to him, not just the things we can get from him. God doesn't want a bunch of little socialists running around in his church. The only reason they're in religion is for what they can get out of religion, what they can get out of God. God wants people who want to be his friend. Now, if you think that's audacious, say, Pastor, you just preached three weeks ago. We need to have the fear of God. We'll get to that in a moment. Fear of God and friendship with God are are really knit together very, very uh, tightly. But I want to just remind you, the verse I just finished reading indicates God's eyes are searching to and fro throughout the earth to look for precisely that kind of man. People who come to his throne, not just because every time they come to the throne, uh, they want something from God, but because they're lonely for God. They're homesick for God. Uh, (laughs) There are a lot of things that made... Uh, Abraham, the original Abraham great, his faith made him great, his obedience made him great. But one of the things that made Abraham great was his friendship. Three times Abraham is called the friend of God. His heart was totally loyal to God. In fact, uh, uh, Rodney shared with us uh, some weeks ago how even when God asked for his son Isaac, he gave his son Isaac up to God. Abraham was a friend of God. God was a friend of Abraham. And I think this is in part what it means to be a man after God's own heart. David's heart resonated with the things that make God's heart resonate. They were heart friends or what some people call bosom friends. David wanted to be loyal to God, completely given to God. So when God says stop, he stopped. When God said go, he he went. Okay, David was out and out for the Lord. He didn't have any closets or rooms that, okay, that part I don't want God looking at. His whole heart was completely given to God. He enjoyed spending time with God. He felt homesick when he felt any distance between God and himself. He fellowshiped, he praised, he ministered to God. And I would urge you to develop that side of your relationship to God, not just give me, give me, give me, give me like a little parasite asking for more and more. Minister to God. Ask God, I want to be your friend, Lord. How can I minister to you? 
Give your affections to Him. Give your praises to Him. He's looking to and fro on the earth for people who are friends. Friends of the Almighty. If politicians had hearts devoted completely to the Lord, they would no longer be politicians. They would be statesmen who would stand strong for the Lord no matter what pressures were brought to bear upon them. They'd be sustained in the midst of the evils and the pressures of politics. Now, the second component of having a heart after God's own heart is having a servant heart. This is what God's heart is. God is constantly serving. Even before there was a world and any humans in this world, the Father was serving and loving and blessing the Son and the Spirit. And the Spirit served the Father and the Son and the Son served the Father and the Spirit and they delighted in doing so. So if you have a servant's heart, you're going to be a friend of God because your heart will resonate with the things that make God's heart resonate. Now, is it possible to be both a servant and a friend? Yes. As a servant, we fear and tremble before God. We stand in awe of God. But as a friend, our heart is drawn into ever closer reaches of God's heart. I mean, you just look at the apostles. Jesus said, I'm going to call you friends from here on out. You're my friends. What did they call themselves? They called themselves the bond slaves of King Jesus. They knew that friendship and service can go hand in hand. Just think of a good marriage where the husband and the wife are best friends. What kind of a marriage is it? It's a marriage where they're both serving each other. They love to serve each other, and that's why they're best friends. So he was, first of all, a friend of God, utterly loyal in his heart to God. Secondly, he was a servant of God. And by the way, the order of this, let me read this scripture first. Psalm seventy-eight seventy. He says, he's also chosen David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. So David is a, a friend, but he's called a servant. Uh, Psalm eighty-nine twenty: I have found my servant David. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. Now, the order here is so important. David saw himself as first and foremost a servant of God and secondarily as a servant of men. Now, it makes sense. A, a public servant should have a servant's heart, right? I think it's a perfect fit there. But this is why I say you've got to be a servant heart to God first, to man second. If you are first and foremost a servant to the people, like many patriots bring it out to be, what you're going to do? You're going to do everything people want you to do. You're going to end up with socialism. You know, because this person wants that, this person wants that. You're busy serving everybody's wants and desires. And before you know it, you're going to have tyranny. You've got to be first and foremost a servant to God. And he who serves God best is going to serve others best. And so we've got to get that order right. This characteristic of servanthood kept David from being a tyrant. You run from politicians who have a bad case of pride. We want servant leadership in family, church, and state. Amen? Amen. We've got to have that. And then finally, so he's a friend of God, he's a servant of God, and finally the, the heart of David was a heart of integrity. Psalm 78 says that David shepherded Israel according to the integrity of his heart. Now integrity is such honesty, even when nobody's looking, you're doing the right thing, right? Uh, it's honesty with God. It's honesty in your dealings with men. And we desperately need a government that has an open sunshine policy where you can look at anything that they have, no backdoor dealings. We need integrity. 
Now let me just end with this. Brothers and sisters, we do not need more humanistic conservatives in civil government. They don't have God's approval. If America is to be saved, we need men after God's own heart to stand in leadership. Remember that the beginning of Saul's reign, he was a political conservative, extremely decentralized, extremely limited government because of the influence of Samuel. But he was rejected by God. Why? Because he rejected God's law. He was not in submission to God. The last 15 years of his life, he was a liberal. So he starts as a conservative, he ends as a liberal, and he still doesn't have God's favor. He's rejected by God. And so I'm no longer voting for conservatives who are still under God's judgment. To me, it seems ludicrous to say, yeah, I think I want this person when God's saying, I don't want this person. Don't you agree? It's ludicrous for us to be voting, choosing the very people that God says, they don't have my heart. I reject them. Just because they have less evil does not make them acceptable in our sight. And there are many, many statesmen, politicians, even a president of the United States who said he would never vote for a person who was not a Christian. Because automatically, he's not, he does not fit God's criteria. A man who rules over men, David says at the end of his life, must be just ruling in the fear of God. He must. It's, it's, there's no options there. I used to say I'd much rather have, I'd much rather have, who was the guy that, uh, um, mm. <laughs> it went blank on me, but uh, anyway, he was uh, very, very libertarian in his, uh, he was anti-federalist, first anti-federalist president. Come on, guys. What's that? No, no, no. Uh, in the early, early presidents, Thomas Jefferson. Thank you. You get a brownie point. <laughs> I used to say that uh, I would much rather, and I would vote for, uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson over... Uh, you know, or say some liberal. You know, I've come to more and more, yes, there'd be a lot less dangers with Thomas Jefferson, no doubt about it. But I've come to realize that that's really not the way God wants us to vote. Study chapter 8. If you, if you think that way, study chapter 8 and realize what are the people voting for. They don't want a rank liberal who's going to be ty- tyrannizing their lives. They wanted a conservative but they were not voting for a man after God's own heart. I get into trouble when I go down rabbit trails. Do we really believe that our nation should be one nation under God? If we do, then we need to be returning it to being a nation under God's laws. We need to do everything we can to have the gospel of Jesus Christ penetrating politics and the law of Jesus Christ penetrating into politics. That's the only way we'll have liberty. It's a grace of liberty. It's a law of liberty. And um, so some people say, well, Phil, that's just perfectionism. You cannot be perfect. I am not perfectionistic. David was not a perfect man. He had all kinds of problems. But I would have voted for David, even with all of his problems. It's not perfectionism. Is does this man have a heart that God approves of? Is he a man after God's own heart? And it's just a short list here. It's a person who's friends with God, whose heart is totally loyal with God, who's got a servant heart and a heart of integrity. Does he have David's heart? And I think that can only happen if we define it by God's grace and His law. Amen. Amen. Father, we come to You. 
this morning praying that you would accomplish in our life the disciplines that are needed in your church through the tyrannies that you have imposed upon us to make the church wake up and submit itself to King Jesus. We want no other king but King Jesus. And anyone who rejects King Jesus from his life, may we treat that as treason. May we treat that as utterly objectionable. Father, there was a time in our nation when the courts would not even allow an atheist uh, to be a witness because they did not trust his witness. May we come once again to a time, Father, when we have a Christian nation, a nation that submits itself entirely to you. And Father, if there has been any chaff, any corn cob in this sermon, I pray that these people would ignore it and uh, toss it out. But Father, I pray that all of the corn, the nutrition, that which is biblical from your word would be embraced no matter how difficult this may be and no matter how contrary to our paradigms that this sermon may be. Father, sanctify us as your people and help us to have an influence upon our culture, not retreating from it, but penetrating it. And in your perfect timing, May your kingdom come more and more in this nation and your will be done more and more in this nation. We desire to see you lifted up above everything else. And I pray that you would be pleased to use us to that end. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.